Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Ambassador Vivian Berkovich uh, joins me, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. She joins us from uh, Tel Aviv. She's the publisher of the state of Tel Aviv on Substack and the uh, ambassador in uh, her podcast just had an interview with the mother and father of a 23-year-old badly wounded Israeli hostage taken by Hamas. Lots to talk about. Uh, Ambassador, thanks for coming back on the program. Can I start with this? Because one of the lead stories was today, or is today, that Hezbollah fired a barrage of rockets into northern Israel. Uh, what's going on? Is there a widening of the war inevitable in, the, in this case, in this scenario? Well, I can tell you that, uh, and first of all, hi, Roy. Happy New Year. Welcome and to back. You. Yeah. Um, hope your voice doesn't hurt too, your throat doesn't hurt too much. Um, so, yes, there was uh, a, bit, a barrage of rockets uh, from Hezbollah to various communities in the north, and yes, they hit a much wider area, and they also went further south um, than they have to date. So, you know, the million-dollar question is, um, will there be a kind of widening of the war? I think most people feel that it's inevitable. It's a matter of time. And what's the mood in Israel? If I were to ask a um, cross-section of Israelis a question, and, and that would be, how do you personally feel, or how are you personally reacting to the war against Hamas and looking ahead over the, over the next year anyway? What, would, what, what responses might I receive? Um, I think that it would obviously depend who you talk to, but kind of the broad bandwidth, what would, you know, what would most people say they would express um, just tremendous sadness and despair, disbelief at the level of hatred that is being shown towards Jewish people and Israel throughout the world. And I have to say that Canada, which usually does not factor into these um, discussions about global geopolitics, has absolutely astonished Israelis. Like, they're just like, what happened to Canada? But that's another thing, another story. Um, and I think that um, there's a lot of uh, frustration and rage, frankly, at the government and the IDF um, for, because of what happened on October 7th and what continues. I mean, you know, people's lives are beyond uprooted, destroyed, the economy is a complete, in complete chaos. Like the country is sort of functioning, but not really. We're at war. Um, but there's this additional layer here of this incomprehensible hatred and flipping of the table in so many places of people and governments and communities blaming the Jews what happened and not actually protesting that, no, 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 wait, this is Hamas. They started this thing. What do you expect Israel to do? Just roll over and take it. And so the disbelief and the shock are profound. I, I can't overstate that. Yeah. When I was speaking with uh, Lori Goldstein in the last half hour, I read a, a tweet that I put out this morning which I honestly, yeah. Ambassador, didn't expect a great deal of response to or reaction to because there was much going on. 
mm-hmm. but it occurred to me that I really should do this. And the response has been really, really strong. The, the, the tweet or the X, I don't know what to call it anymore. Truthfully, it reads this way. Truthfully, did you ever imagine the Jew hatred today exhibited so openly existed in Canada? Did you ever imagine Canada's prime minister uh, who professes his commitment to diversity would so weakly, if at all, respond to calls for the annihilation of our and his fellow citizens. There was immediate response, and I've received emails on it, and the, the responses on Twitter, at the Roy Green Show. Um, were you aware, I mean, I wasn't, but were you aware, Was were other Jewish Canadians, or Jewish Canadians generally, aware that the Jew hatred that is so openly exhibited today actually existed in this country prior to October the 7th? Yes. Really? Yes. I mean, what I will tell you is what did surprise me is there were two things that have kind of shocked me. One, maybe three. One is the virulence um, and the, the, the velocity with which it spread in Canada and other places. So I'm not surprised at all, that it was there. I've always felt it, and I can give specific examples. But it was like this forest fire just gone completely out of control in within a minute. Um, I think that, you know, obviously one's view on that particular issue, you know, did we think there was anti-Semitism, um, that's going to depend to, to somewhat on your personal experience, but... I think anyone who was paying attention, you know, understood that uh, there was anti-Semitism in Canada as there is everywhere else. I've always been of the view that it's much stronger in Canada than in many countries, and I think we're seeing that now. Um, and the other thing that didn't surprise me, but how open it's become, is uh, what I call, you know, institutionally entrenched anti-Semitism. And I think we're seeing that in school boards and the way in which they're simply not reacting to Jewish students being bullied physically, verbally, um, like classic hate behavior. Um, I can speak to, uh, there are many incidents in the Toronto District School Board that are, the administration simply is just not doing anything. Um, Ottawa has similar issues, and I expect that they're across the country. And you don't need Jewish kids in school to also have bullying, um, it's being taken out on teachers. And there's some really serious incidents. Um, and, of course, I only know of a few, but it's more than enough to make your blood run cold. Um, and I had, of course, you know, extensive experience when I was ambassador working with, uh, you know, public, nonpartisan professional public services, I like to call themselves, in the Department of Global Affairs, Foreign Affairs, whatever its name is these days. And, um, the entrenched and hard-baked cultural anti-Semitism in that department has always been known in Ottawa. But I got to tell you, I was in in the belly of the beast, and it was brazen, and it was really, really fierce and ugly, and it shows. So uh, I listened to the interview that Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson did year-end interview with Prime Minister Trudeau. I want to play you a bit of that interview, and it begins with Mercedes asking the Prime Minister a question. You'll hear the question, you'll hear his answer. 
You changed your position on, on Israel uh, over the course of the last couple of months. You were initially very pro-Israeli, Israel's right to defend itself, um, and you've since decided that a ceasefire is, is necessary. What led you to make that decision in your change in position? Let me be very clear. We haven't changed our position. From the very beginning, we talked about Israel's right to defend itself in accordance with humanitarian law and the need to protect civilian lives. What we've seen over the past nine, ten weeks is uh, an evolving humanitarian catastrophe that requires us to continually shift in our approaches. We, we were among the first countries to call for humanitarian pauses, uh, and we're now uh, calling, like much of the rest of the world uh, for work towards a ceasefire, but a ceasefire that can't be one-sided, a ceasefire that continues to recognize that Israel has the right to defend itself, that Hamas must lay down its arms, release hostages, not use humans as shields, uh, and understand that there is no future uh, for Hamas in the governance of Gaza, particularly as we move towards a two-state solution where you have a peaceful, secure Israel alongside a peaceful, secure, viable Palestinian state without Hamas uh, in charge. That's where we need to get to. That has been Canada's position from the very beginning, and that continues to be our position. We are responding as necessary to events as they unfold as time goes on. Ambassador? Yes. What would you like me to say? I mean, he's, um, he, he obviously is not getting very good briefings from um, his National Security Advisor, Privy Council, and uh, Foreign Affairs staff um, because he seems to be in this alternate universe. It's just not real. He's all over the place. You know, his position seems to be we advocate for a ceasefire. We modify our position based on circumstances on the ground and the evolving humanitarian catastrophe causes us to advocate and press for a ceasefire. And then he goes on to stipulate what the terms of that ceasefire would be. You know, Hamas. And they well, that's been Israel's position from October 8th. Go talk to Hamas, Prime Minister Trudeau. Go talk to Qatar. Because... First of all, Hamas has great uh, admiration for, for Justin Trudeau for making that call for a ceasefire. Um, when he states that, you know, almost all of the world is, is also, you know, calling for the same, that's not true. Um, and there are many countries in Europe and the United States as well uh, that understand that a, a ceasefire, a complete ceasefire is just not real. It's not realistic or it would have happened. Hamas isn't going to lay down their arms. This is an ideological movement. It's an Islamist death cult. They are working towards the establishment of a caliphate worldwide, just like ISIS. It's just incomprehensible that someone of his stature, the Prime Minister of Canada, just carries on with his rainbows and unicorns and, and refuses to deal with reality. Everyone in Israel is horrified by what is happening with the civilians in Gaza. And I think every decent person in the world, it is a catastrophe. But it is a catastrophe caused by Hamas. Hamas started this war. Hamas has oppressed its, its own people for 
you know, since 2007, when the aid trucks are going into the Gaza Strip and convoys, you know what happens the second they cross in? Hamas terrorists hijack the aid trucks with guns and shoot civilians and kill them if they need to. They take all of the supplies for themselves and they leave the civilians to starve. Every bit of criticism from Prime Minister Trudeau's mouth should be aimed squarely at Hamas. You know, the, uh, I, have to, I, I have to take a break here, but one of the things that he said, I don't expect mm. to hear from a prime minister. And what he said was, we continuously, this is what he told Mercedes, we continuously shift in our approaches. <laughs> you can't continuously shift in your approaches. As a nation, you should and must be consistent in your approaches. You can modify, depending on the circumstance and the evolution of a situation, but you can't say we continuously shift in our approaches. That just sounds too convenient. Ambassador, we have a few minutes left. Would you please talk to us about the conversation you had uh, with a mother and father of a 23-year-old badly wounded Israeli hostage taken by Hamas? Sure. Um, the young woman, her name is Romy Gonen, 23 years old, and she had been at the music festival um, this Hamas attacked with a few thousand young participants, and she was with her best friend. Um, she was taken hostage uh, and very badly wounded. Um, I spent a lot of time over the last few weeks with her mother, Mirav, and her father, Ethan. And uh, those interviews are going to be dropped one tonight on my website and uh, one in a few days. It's beyond heartbreaking. I don't even know where to begin. I really would urge your listeners to listen to the, the interview tonight that I'm dropping or afternoon your time with uh, Mirav Gonen. She was on the telephone with her daughter almost, for almost four hours continuously as this horror was unfolding and she was trying to hide from the terrorists and and then um, in the last few minutes when she could hear gunshots um, being shot at the car in which Romy was traveling um, and shouting in Arabic and then the phone went dead and her heart stopped and she said time stopped and all their lives stopped at that moment. And she talked about the efforts that they have been engaged in for now 91 days straight, nonstop, meeting with anyone, the Red Cross, government officials, visiting officials, anyone who will see them. Uh, one of her children, her daughter, um, 18 years old, went to the UN to advocate for the release of the hostages. Um, her father just, you know, it, it's everything you would expect. Just they can't comprehend this horror. They know that at A57, um, there were some hostages who were released on that day, and they did see Romy in the underground tunnels, and her wound had really deteriorated, and she was receiving no medical care, and they're worried for her life. And he's, she's being held, they're being held, probably most of the remaining hostages in, in dark, dank tunnels, 40 meters below the surface of the, of the ground. There's, there's very little air, there's no light. Um, obviously, no hygiene. Um, many of the hostages who have already been released speak of uh, sort of chronic starvation, uh, and that was almost 40 days ago, so I'm sure the situation is much worse. Her parents are 
it's just extraordinary to be in the presence of these people who somehow hold their lives together. They have four other children to take care of and advocate just so fiercely. Yeah. It's very humbling. Very humbling. You're absolutely right. 6.9 million would be bigger than the population of the greater Toronto area. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, we're talking a huge number of people. That huge number, 6.9 million, is the number of Canadians who are living in food insecurity. It includes 1.8 million kids, as we said, over and over and over. That should disturb anybody. And if you put all of those people into one community, it would without question be the largest community in this country. And it was, f- food was one of the massive issues of 2023. Can I afford it? People going to the grocery stores. I mean, I saw it a couple of days ago after coming back from Switzerland. I went to the grocery store because my fridge was empty or the stuff that was in there was kind of strange. So it had to go. And And the person in front of me kept, Picking up and putting down, picking up, putting down, picking up, putting down two small items. Looking at them and eventually turned them both back to the cashier and said, no, I, I, I won't take these. And I'm sure that scene repeated itself time and again in 2023 right across Canada. Uh, we talked about food inflation, outpacing regular inflation with our guest. We talked about... Um, Shrinkflation, or at least accusations of shrinkflation, accusations of profiteering by grocery chains, and there was parliamentary involvement. So what should we expect in 2024? And back with us, and for the first time in 2024, Professor Sylvain Charlebois, uh, the director of the Agri-Foods Laboratory at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, you ever step on the gas pedal and nothing happens? Uh, I'm no mechanic, but no, it's <laughs> this, happened to me. I'm just saying. It happened to you? I know, it's happening to me right now when I try to talk. It's like... Well, your voice is actually better than yesterday, I must say. Oh, yeah? Uh, well, good. But, that's uh, you got to take it easy for the next uh, few days, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's all I have is laryngitis, but it, it's like taking the, you know, getting in the race car and step on the gas and the thing just won't move. It's hard to make a living uh, in radio when your voice is, uh, is not working well. I gotta yeah, I think my future would be limited if I, <laughs> if I sounded like this permanently. Thank you for joining us. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. So in 23, the dominant aspects of the food issue circled around food availability, food cost, inflation, greedflation, all of those issues and more. Has any one of those issues been laid to rest? Have several been laid to, la- laid to rest? Are we any better off the first week of January than we say, let's say, the third week, week of October? Slowly. Uh, I mean, we ended the year uh, in a positive fashion. We, uh, we uh, I mean, food inflation uh, reached, uh, peaked, I guess, in February of 2023, and since then, the rate has gone down, uh, and it's going to continue to drop to uh, to probably about 2.5 percent, uh, which is really the sweet spot for 
food inflation. Um, I must say, Roy, I mean, in 2023, we demonized inflation. I mean, we need inflation to grow the economy. I mean, it's, it's just the, the, the rate was just too high for, for too long. And, and that was due to major uh, global um, issues, uh, events like COVID and, and Ukraine. But that's th- th- those events are behind us now. And Looking forward, I don't foresee any major events that could actually potentially disrupt uh, our current past, other than perhaps uh, the conflict that that right now is is transpiring in the Middle East. If that if that conflict expands beyond uh, Israel and, uh, and Palestine, unfortunately, that could actually have an impact on oil oil prices and. When oil prices are impacted, uh, typically it does uh, affect um, agricultural commodities as well. So, but for so far, we don't see that right now. So we should go through the year without major, major um, shift. So the the world that was extremely unsteady. Let's just say for a single parent uh, with a couple of kids trying to get through the day. And I received many emails, talked to some single parents who said, and we've talked about this, can't fill up my car, can't go to the grocery store and get what I need, uh, have to really manage my way through my food budget. So are you suggesting that by, I don't know, third quarter of this year, that situation will appreciably improve for that single parent, barring any other developments that we're not aware of yet? We're actually expecting some price wars, if you can imagine, uh, by by mid year 2024, especially in the center of the store. The economy is slowing down, uh, and uh, we're all nomads now. We're bargain hunters. Uh, we're just we're hardwired to just look for bargains. Doesn't matter who's offering the best deal, what brand is the best deal. We're just we're just buying, and so and grocers have noticed that we're not as loyal as we used to. And to make us loyal again, they're going to have to offer us some really major deals. We've gone through this cycle before, and typically prices do drop. Not for uh, for some parts of the section, some parts of the grocery store, but in the middle of the store, the, where the dry goods are, uh, even with, in the freezer aisle, you could see some uh, prices drop, which is really good news for for consumers. But I must say, Roy, I mean the biggest challenge. Uh, with food affordability or food security in Canada has nothing to do with food prices. It has everything to do with the other necessity of life, which is shelter. Uh, Interest rates have gone up. Everyone is paying more to make sure they keep a roof over their heads, no matter uh, if you have a mortgage or you're renting. Most Canadians have been impacted by what has happened uh, over the last 18 months or so. Uh, and uh, that's going to continue. More more people will renew their mortgages. More and more people will have to pay more for their rent. And as they pay more for that, they'll be showing up at the grocery store with less money to spend on food. That's really the big problem right now. Yeah. Our last guest told us um, he was renegotiating his mortgage over the last few days, and he expects it to go up 30 to 40%. I, I believe it absolutely. If you 
If you carry a mortgage of, say, $300,000 amortized over 25 years on a flexible rate, uh, you're likely paying uh, $7,000, $8,000 more compared to 18 months ago. And so if you're, if you're renewing, you're likely going to commit to a fixed rate. That fixed rate is likely to be lower right now, but it's still going to be quite high. And so a lot of a lot of households were caught off guard, and 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 the shift was so violent that um, that most of the households couldn't plan ahead. And I think that's really what happened over the last eighteen months or so. Uh, two quarters in, during twenty twenty three, two quarters people were spending less on food despite inflation, and so that's why I think grocers are in for a fight this year. I, I know a lot of people think that grocers took advantage of, uh, of inflation to increase prices. We just didn't see the evidence of that with gross margins. They've been the same for five years. But I think 2024 is really going to be a difficult year for grocers, which is why what we're expecting in 2024 are more fights between suppliers and grocers, similar to what we're seeing right now in Europe between Carrefour and PepsiCo. If you've uh, been pay- paying attention What's going on with Carrefour? Carrefour decided to stop selling uh, Pepsi products in four countries because of higher prices. Yeah, I just spent two weeks in Switzerland. Talk about high prices. That's right. Exactly. So, and, and uh, of course, in Europe, the, the 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 food economy is very different than in Canada. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, I mean, there's there's probably going to be a lot of infighting going on just to make sure that they can keep uh, uh, prices as low as possible, to build loyalty, to get us back into the stores. Uh, and so I, we are expecting prices to remain stable, and we're expecting more privately labeled products as well. Okay. We have not done this before, I don't think. We may have once or twice, but I don't think so. Yeah, to our oh, listeners, absolutely. Uh, just, just to our listeners, if you have a question for Professor Charlebois about food, food prices, about the availability of food, about what may be coming, issues that matter to you, questions that you have, we can take a call or two at 1-800-263-2428 right now. Let's talk to uh, Paula, who's in Edmonton and has a question for you. Paula, go ahead, please. Yeah, I just have a question. I've, I've been hearing about all this uh, food increase in costs and all this. And my question to you is, what does the numbers show? I, I see people shopping, and I'm wondering if anyone needs what we're buying. Is there an element of us buying too much and rising the prices themselves? Like, I just, I see carts full of, of stuff. So, that- so if, if I understand correctly, uh, uh, Paul's wondering why people are buying less food. Is that is that the question? Well, and, and if we're driving the prices up on our on our own, by by increasing the, the what we're buying, like is there any evidence to as to speak to like what we're bu- are we buying more? Actually, I posted something yesterday on Twitter and uh, or X, and people reacted. Basically, what I was asking people to do from now on is to stop posting overpriced food products and start doing the opposite. Because <laughs> if we unintentionally yeah. push prices higher as we normalize higher food prices in general. So we need to basically celebrate lower prices as much as possible to put pressure on people and get people to buy uh, that are cheaper 
yeah. that's kind of how we can help each other out instead of doing the opposite. Because in the last 18 months, we've seen a lot of people being upset with our food prices. And all they did was to take a picture in a store. And I'm actually in the store right now as we speak. And uh, the first thing I'm going to do is try to find deals and promote those deals as much as possible. Yeah. I just find that we're a lot of people are shopping and buying so much more. And, and when I look in their carts, I'm like, but are you, are you buying the smart things? Because there are cheaper things in the store. I think people are getting smarter. Uh, they do. And uh, the other thing, of course, because of higher food prices, and this is just an hypothesis, is that people are actually wasting less. They're more careful. Uh, over the holidays, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, we were very, we were more careful about you know, how we portion uh, uh, with portion sizes, how we took care of leftovers. Uh, we did eat leftovers for quite a few days this year just because we knew it was so expensive to buy food. And I think a lot of people did that, and they're going to continue to do that. It's a, it's a good point. It's a it's a good point because if you if you buy the truly expensive items, and you fill your cart with them, and a, and a good number of people do that, where's the incentive to lower the prices? Yeah, I just think anecdotally, when I'm at the grocery store, I see a lot of carts still very full. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm take, taking a step back, but I just don't know if everybody else is to help drive down those prices. That's a good point. Paula, thank you very much for the call from Edmonton. No doubt listening to 6.30. Chad, uh, Silva, if there are amber lights or red lights in the distance, other than potential world events, what might they be? Well, I mean, climate change is certainly a variable that we watch very closely. Uh, every year, Mother Nature uh, will have a say in terms of uh, how expensive our uh, food will be. Uh, but again, uh, we never know. Uh, I would say that right now, things are much more stable than 12 months ago. And we are expecting a calmer year. Uh, and I said earlier, I think we are expecting some uh, some prices to drop in the middle of the store. So I would encourage people to to pay attention to to those uh, loss leaders, rebates, and loyalty programs. A lot of people are leaving uh, on the table uh, some money uh, because they're not redeeming. They're not taking advantage of loyalty programs, and and grocers are going to become more aggressive using loyalty programs to get us back into their store. So pay attention. To, to some of those programs. Costco was supposed to increase its membership fee uh, in 2023. They didn't do that. Why? Because they don't want to lose any members. Uh, loyalty is going to be a big issue. So I can't let you go without speaking about your favorite uh, aspect of uh, the food industry, the dairy industry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, it is my favorite. Topic. Yes, it is. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen well, in the dairy industry? Well, the dairy industry, actually, if you read Canada's food price report, which we published uh, about a month ago now, I guess, uh, we, we're not expecting much from the dairy industry. They're, the the Cane Dairy Commission, along with the dairy farmers, are giving us a little bit of a break this year. Uh, so if you're, if, you're a, if you're a cheese lover uh, or if you enjoy yogurt or, or if you drink milk, uh, 2024 is, is likely going to be a good year. The, the only thing that bothers me is that time and time again, we see these uh, news items telling us that 
We're not allowing more cheese, more products into our market, despite all the trade deals that we ratified in recent years. And, and frankly, I think consumers deserve more choice, deserve more competition. And, and that's the one thing that we need to work on. Canadians can be reassured uh, that we are acting with determination to bring inflation down. I, I get it that it is a bit counterintuitive. We're raising interest rates. That's raising the cost of borrowing for Canadians. But actually, that is what the economy needs. Because by making borrowing more expensive, people are going to borrow less, spend less, and save more. And that's going to take some of the steam out of inflation. One of the most influential voices in this country, and uh, most people listening to this program right now, have no idea who that just was. Probably most of you listening to the program have no idea who I am. It's really Roy Green. It has to be. I'm wearing his clothes. But, yeah, it's the voice. And oh, it's only bugging me. Maybe it's bugging you, too. It's better today than it was yesterday. Much better. And I suspect by tomorrow it'll be better. <laughs> Hopefully not worse. Anyhow, we're looking into 2024. When I did the last program's last live shows... In December, we looked back at 2023, some of the major issues that we talked about, and we had specific guests with us, and uh, some of those guests are with us again today as we look into the next 12 months. In the last half hour, we spoke with Professor Sylvain Charlebois, the director of the Agri-Foods Lab at Dalhousie University, about food and food prices and food inflation, and he sees improvement and better things for consumers, which is great. But where are we? As far as our economic well-being is concerned, and then the big picture, well, big picture affects all of our individual pictures, doesn't it? Uh, Ari Goldkind telling us earlier today that he's renegotiating his mortgage and he's expecting a 30 to 40 percent increase um, for most people. That's when I start to see the uh, signs on the lawn for sale. Um, stock markets are showing some signs of recovery. How much of a how much of a reliable indicator is that? Uh, uh, I've never been I've never been one that's bought completely into that. But then I'm not a, a markets expert. Um, oh yeah, the voice Tiff Macklem, <laughs> the, the uh, head of the Bank of Canada. That was the voice. So what's going to happen with interest rates? Are we in better shape? Worse shape? Professor Eric Cam knows how to address all of these things, and his voice is working macroeconomics at Toronto Metropolitan University. Professor Cam, Happy New Year. How are you? Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, I'm well, and I would argue in an oratory sense, maybe a little bit better than you. Feel uh, feel free to lob up nice, fat fastballs for me to hit, and I can just ramble on, and you can rest your voice. Okay. So let's, let's, get, let's get at this one right away. Do the recession concerns remain as far as you're concerned? Yes. I mean, absolutely. It's nice to flip the calendar and, you know, have the number go from 2023 to 2024, but we don't get a, uh, a whiteboard in the real world. You can't wipe your mistakes clean and start again. And so what I see in terms of a real overview, and I wish I could do what Dr. Chalabois does, because it's nice to be to have the luxury, and he's a very smart man, of picking, cherry picking in a sense, Roy, pieces of the economy, pieces of our of, of our landscape where we say, well, things might be a little bit better. I'm kind of stuck in that um, 
macro view, I kind of hover over the economy and say, how are we doing in general? And so in thinking about coming on today, I was I've concentrated on four themes that I thought would shape the economy's performance for this year. And all of them at this particular moment are doing well worse than the other OECD nations. And so for me to start off, I would talk about that there's no more discussion about are we heading into a recession? We're in a recession. I, I, I don't give a damn if Statistics Canada gives me a, a hard and fast definition of what a recession is. I know what love is and I know what a recession is and we're in one. And the second theme we can discuss to me is falling on old themes are population growth and immigration. The third one is, of course, our vaunted Bank of Canada. And you just played our governor's assessment. And if we're going to talk about monetary policy, then the fourth one has to be our fiscal policy. And so we can discuss any or all of these. But I think as we are circling the economy, um, I would say these are four broad topics that are front and center for this year. And right now, as we sit on the 6th of January, they are hovering at around 0% and trending down, Roy. So what happens then to the so-called middle class of this country? We had a middle class minister at one time. Mr. Trudeau had a middle class minister for two years, 2019 to 21. Now that post has disappeared. So what happens to the middle class and the people who are, because this is a massive issue, people who are greatly concerned about their mortgage rates, people who are greatly afraid that the homes they bought, their homes that are the, really the backbone of their lives may be in peril. What can you share with us as far as your thoughts on that is concerned? I think that they better be. I think that they better be. And I think that um, the middle class right now is sadly lumped in with the people on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. And I think that all of the four issues that I just talked about are really going to be hurting them. But since you zoned in on one, the Bank of Canada, Roy, has made it abundantly clear, abundantly clear that they are going to hold the line until such a time that the inflation rate, whatever version of inflation that they're using today, because I think it changes, hits 2%. And until that time, come hell or high water, there are not going to be any decreases in that rate of inflation. There are not going to be any decreases in the nominal rate of interest. That's the borrowing rate. And so, as I said in the before the year, you still have 60% of this country in the same position as Ari Goldkind. I've never met Ari, but I like when he's on your show because I think he makes good sense, good intuitive sense. And I'm worried. I'm very worried. As I used the term in the last year, bloodshed on the streets is not too strong. Mr. Goldkind, bless him, is a lawyer and a media personality. And I've never looked in his bank account, but I'm going to go on the assumption that he can probably absorb an increase in his mortgage rate. But you and I know from citing way too many Canadian studies that there are way too many Canadians that are one paycheck or two paychecks away from insolvency. Yep. And those people, Roy, I don't know. 
I don't know as an economist, what are they going to do if their mortgage should double? Because the old answer used to be, well, they'll rent. But guess what? A, there's no rentals out there. And B, rentals are up 20 and 30%. This, Roy, as you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, is a housing crisis like we have never, ever seen. Because it's a crisis in demand, thanks to immigration, thanks to population growth, and a crisis in supply, because there's nowhere to build new houses in urban centers. And anybody who believes Justin Trudeau is going to build thousands and thousands and thousands of houses in and around urban centers like Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, I'd like to sell them some swampland in Florida, Roy. Yeah, apparently he's building there too. Well, I, you know what? There's, they've got a little bit of a brighter picture than us because the United States right now has a large open economy and an economy heading into a, a, a political season. You know, there's a funny trend that as the U.S. economy tends toward elections, they have these mini booms. And so if we were talking about the U.S. economy, okay, they're not having a banner year. Um, no one's writing home about it, but it's trending up. And I would like to see the Canadian economy follow suit. I'd like to see some part of our economy start to trend upward. And Roy, you, by the way, stumbled upon something I would love to tell people. Anybody who believes the stock market is the way out of a recession is kidding themselves. The stock market is the economy's version of a night in Las Vegas. And the economy is not predicted terribly well by any stock market. It is predicted well by labor markets and housing markets. And both of ours are in desperate need of a fix. Now, Professor Cam, you prepared uh, specific items that you want to talk about. I'd like you to do that. But let me preface that by just uh, referencing Ryan Tamilti's story in the National Post. And he writes that Canada is seen as an well, Canada is seen as an unserious player on the international stage. This is according to the Chamber of Commerce CEO, Perrin Beattie, who also in an open letter to Justin Trudeau wrote the nation needs to boost defense spending to deal with an increasingly dangerous world. Mr. Beattie, of course, was National Minister of Defense in Brian Mulroney's government. But Canada is seen as a, quote, unserious player on the international stage. Not helpful, obviously. Please take it away. Well, it's 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 not helpful. The the problem is is we're not doing anything to improve that position. I mean, I would argue first and foremost as you know, I think that an economy has to be competitive to be a thriving economy and our co economy is is not competitive because we have a government that tends to not allow a lot of competition. And so that keeps output low and prices high and choice minimal. Um, our banks, I know that people think our banks are, are monoliths and huge, but on a world stage, they're very small and they're not allowed to be major players in corporate markets, bond markets, and financial markets. And so again, on a, a big picture, it's very hard to see how we ever buck that trend. Although I would have one prescription for my prime minister, which is like every first-year economics book preaches, if you would like to be internationally competitive, from the time of David Ricardo in the 1700s, you have to exploit what countries call a comparative advantage. 
no matter what the country is, Roy, and no matter what you think of it anywhere in the world, you are better at doing some things than others. And so what most capitalist economies do is they produce the things that they produce the best. And by the best, I mean the most efficient. And they buy what they don't produce the best. And a lot of countries have used this as a growth strategy. Canada, unfortunately, tends to turn their back on this, especially under the Trudeau government, because the things that we would cultivate at the lowest cost and the most efficient are, of course, our staples, natural resources, fuel, things like this. But we choose not to exploit them. We, we buy things that we could produce for much cheaper. That makes us more dependent internationally. And I don't have to tell you that like any person that has no bargaining power, you lose. And right now, Canada has very little bargaining power in the rest of the world. And let me end the thought by saying, the only thing I see out of the Trudeau government in terms of an international growth strategy is population growth, bringing in immigration. And I said it before, and I'll say it again. There isn't a Jewish person alive, me included, that turns their back on immigration because every Jewish person was an immigrant at one time. But population growth as a growth driver, as a theory of growth to fall back on has never, ever worked in a capital society. And so this is what I worry about. I like the question about being internationally competitive because right now we're not. But the saving grace is we could be with a little thought and a little innovation and just sitting down and realizing what does our country produce the most of at the cheapest price? Let's cultivate it and sell it and stop buying it abroad, Roy. Yep. Energy, we buy hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil every single day. We absolutely do. And then they and then they argue in Ottawa, should we have pipelines to sell that oil? And I, I will just never forget as an economist, just as a person, cognizant human being reading the newspaper, I don't understand. I don't understand why this government is so abject and against real growth strategies. Natural resources, not interested. Increasing disposable income, this isn't the time. Well, let me tell you, Mr. Trudeau, this is absolutely the time to take a silly, misguided policy like the Green Initiative and shelve it. Because shelving it doesn't mean scrapping it. It means reconsidering it when you have people that can afford their rent and afford to feed their children. But until we're there, nobody in the grocery store walking by the meat or the vegetables gives a damn about clean air. They want to, Roy, but they can't. So we have a minute. What's the takeaway from our first conversation of 2024? I think the takeaway actually is a positive, believe it or not. I think an economy isn't perfect, but I think it's not a bad machine. But I think like every other machine, it can break and it needs some pushing and some prodding and some fixing. And we call that monetary and fiscal policy. You know, economies are complicated, but the solutions, there's only two. You either use government spending or you use 
monetary policy and adjusting the interest rates through the money supply. And what I would say is even with gross miscalculation and execution on the part of the government, this little engine continues to function. And so all I would say is I would like people to think about and maybe even reaching out to those people they voted for to say, we're doing fine. I mean, not really, but if you want to compare it to where I think we're going to end up before the year is over, we're still okay. We're still treading water. Let's use the powers that we have and set the economy off on a better path. Okay. The way we're going of no growth drivers is going to result in only one thing, Roy. No growth. Professor Gam, many people are nervous. We'll talk many times in 2024, I'm sure. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. It's an honor, and I uh, I say stay healthy, but I mean stay healthier. Okay. Eight out of ten Canadians will get more from the climate payment incentive than what what it costs. That's a fact. They can they can debate it, and they can go into the alternative views of the world. But Canadians will get eight out of ten Canadians will get more. And Mr. Speaker, what I'm interested to know is when will they have a plan to fight climate change? When will they help? tackle this issue that is costing Canadians billions of dollars, Mr. Speaker, year after year. Question period of Parliament too often disintegrates into a clown show. Let's find out if our next guest knows who that was, whose voice that was. Dan McTagg is president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. He was a member of Parliament for 18 years, held senior positions within government, been a friend of mine for more than 30 years. Do you know who that was, Dan? Yeah, Stephen Gibo. <laughs> That's the one, <laughs> the tower climber. How are you? What a fellow. How are you doing? How's your transition to 2024 being? Uh, same as it was in 2023, uh, Roy. I mean, uh, the price is the same. Uh, looks like uh, nothing has really changed on the uh, uh, what's driving energy prices. And, of course, uh, that keeps me quite busy. But... Uh, I, I do note a lot of folks out there, uh, especially in the United States, talking about how prices are normalized, things are getting back uh, to where they should be. Uh, but that can't be said for Canada, uh, simply because, of course, as noted, uh, not one, not two, but three carbon taxes, uh, one of which is already implemented. Uh, second, which is being uh, unveiled, uh, part of Atlantic Canada's already faced that. Newfoundland, by the way, would be facing an eight cent a liter increase come Friday, uh, uh, come Thursday rather, as a result of the second carbon tax, which a lot of people you know, prefer I do not mention, but uh, nevertheless, it is what it is. The clean fuel regulations will hit that province. So nothing uh, in any of this suggests things uh, as far as prices are concerned for energy and the outlook is normal. Uh, it is being significantly distorted by a federal government that, uh, uh, through a policy of blocking pipelines, is weakening the Canadian dollar and at the same time, increasing the cost of energy, which in turn creates this kind of uh, virtual circle of uh, ever-increasing prices for Canadians. And it will not change in 2024. It will continue. Mr. McTaggart, of course, is president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. So that really was my first question. Are we better or worse off uh, in the first week of 24 than we were at the same time last year? So we're pretty much in the same leaky tub. Roy, it's funny because the price of fuel today in the average of about $1.43, $1.44, that's the average across Canada. There have been some changes. Alberta's restored its provincial sales tax. Manitoba removed its sales tax. 
uh, is about three to four cents higher this year than it was this time last year. And you can actually say that uh, a good part of that is, in fact, the carbon tax, the increase in the carbon tax, which uh, we saw increase about 3.3 cents a litre plus HST, GST. So although that is not the only reason, um, those who are celebrating the idea that things are much better in 24 than 23, as far as energy is concerned, I think are, are overlooking significant facts about uh, uh, the cost of energy and the cost of doing business in this country being much higher, artificially so, than other nations, which uh, are starting to show that they're getting a bit of an advantage, especially our friends south of the border of the United States. Yeah, I received an email from uh, a listener in uh, Manitoba, and uh, she wrote, and I won't identify her because I didn't ask her if I could, but she wrote, um, I just wanted to share with you what happened the last few days in Manitoba. Wab Canoe, our new premier, promised to cut fuel tax this January, possibly for six months. But just the intent of helping us out is incredible. And today I filled up my tank from $1.30 last time to today $1.15 a gallon, a liter, I guess. Yeah. And, and Costco is even cheaper. I can't tell you. This is what the listener writes, Dan. I can't tell you the instant relief and gratitude I felt. Finally in my psyche, I feel I'm catching a little break. It lifted my spirit. So the federal selfish government could not do that months and years ago to help all Canadians struggling. She writes, I'm a widow. I don't have anyone to fall back on. I stay home a lot, isolated, because I can't afford to waste money. And the federal government, caps now, does not care. It's disheartening, uh, Roy. It is. It's, it's very much uh, how disconnected... Uh, this federal government and its allies in the NDP and the Green Party are disconnected from the reality that they're imposing on Canadians. And I can say that with absolute credibility and certainty. I served that party for 18 years. I served it in the trenches 20 years before that. You know the story. Um, this is not my Liberal Party. It is certainly not the party I recall that was interested in having Canadians back. We were the only country that I know of in the OECD that raised energy taxes during the height of the uh, pandemic. We are the only nation. And it has to tell you something about the, uh, the, the moral compass of those running your country today. Now, I can make a political statement. I'm not going to do that. I come awfully close. I think Canadians really have to make a decision here. There's not a whit of difference that we can make in terms of reducing CO2 that is going to A, change the weather, or B, uh, better yet, uh, you know, make the world a much better, cleaner place. Um, I, I think at the, at the end of all of this, if we have a government that refuses to prioritize the plight of Canadians, is it any wonder that so many are feeling the way this individual did when she wrote into you and, and yep. made those comments, which then come from the heart and represent an ever Very much so. And, and Dan, that, uh, that email uh, actually got to me as I was reading it. So it might have sounded like I was having a little fun with you, and I guess I was, when I asked you to identify the voice. But we have to remember... That voice is the voice of the Environment Minister of Canada who has an outsized impact on policy or is the spokesperson for Justin Trudeau on the whole environment issue, the justification for the carbon tax when people are hurting. Mr. Gilbo pushes this agenda 
regardless of anything else, regardless of that listener's concerns, that listener's expression of gratitude to the new premier of Manitoba for giving her a bit of a break for a few months, perhaps. Who knows how long the premier is going to be doing that. But he kept his promise and he's doing it. That listener, to me, represents the responsibility Mr. Giebel has to the citizens of Canada, not just to himself and his own agenda. Well, it's a serious agenda. It's dividing the country, but it shouldn't. we shouldn't be surprised. It does. It has divided the country. Mr. Giebel's background. Uh, speaks you know, uniquely to this overwrought activism that uh, is, uh, is, is threatening the viability of the nation and, and destroying it from within. And I'm not surprised. I mean, he's, a, he's an avowed socialist. Uh, he's a Marxist. Uh, this is a guy who, in his earlier day, wrote uh, eloquently about the need for separatism. Uh, this is a guy who hated uh, energy companies, uh, one of them all shut down. This is a fellow who mocked those who got sick at Walkerton, Ontario, when uh, you know uh, E. coli leached into the system. This is a guy who I don't remember that stuff. <laughs> I do <laughs> I remember quite well. And uh, you know, if you look at the history of Mr. Gibo, you would know uh, beyond the orange jumpsuit and, and dangling from uh, the CN Tower, or uh, you know, and, and being the president and founder of a group uh, called Equitaire yeah. in Quebec. Yeah, right. That's where Mr. Trudeau went to recruit him. <laughs> so if you want to have a fanatic running a department and have those you know, emissaries of fanaticism uh, stationed in every one of the cabinet minister's offices, which is true of the Trudeau government, then expect these kind of things to happen. Okay. But Canada is going to be punished. I would really enjoy the opportunity to speak to Gilbo in this studio. I'd love the opportunity to debate him on the floor of the House of Commons. That's what happened, because it's Mr. Speaker in the middle. <laughs> and, and that is what's so frustrating, Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. That's what's so frustrating to Canadian people when we don't have a familiarity necessarily with the goings-on in Parliament. And we hear this kind of self-serving shouting going on, and we just say... Mm. Shut the hell up and sit down and listen to us. Well, that's it. Right? And I think they're it, having uh, to do that now, Roy. And I think that's going to change. Dan, I, I, Dan, I just got an email from Judy in British Columbia, Victoria, B.C. <laughs> Gas price today, 172.9. Well, that tells you something, and uh, that's a bargain. Uh, that's a province that usually sees in April till about October $2.10 a litre. Uh, and it's going to go up four and a half cents a liter uh, this year. Next year, it'll go up another four and a half cents a liter. Uh, but also, added to that, eventually, 17 cents a liter. So the four cents, which will make its way ultimately uh, by 2030 uh, to an additional, uh, you know, an additional 20 cents a liter, we'll see yet another 20 cents added with the clean fuel standard. Okay. Clean okay. Fuel regulation. okay. 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 Not even including Mr. Gibo's latest iteration, which was the cap only on oil and gas. No other industry, methane coming from a Quebec hydro doesn't get a cap on emissions. Uh, cement plants don't get caps on emissions. Automotive, nothing. Just the oil and gas sector. That's probably another 15 to 20 cents a liter. In other words, gasoline prices will be going up 80 cents a liter. And between now and... Do you, do you, I mean, you, Dan, you know, Dan, you know, and I know... That for so many Canadians, when they drive to work or they drive to the store or they take the kids to a game, 
those numbers on the sign at the gas station represent concern, a fluctuation of four cents, five cents. If it goes down four cents, oh my God, I can fill up. If it goes up five cents, you know, I went and put 50 bucks in my car this morning. I was in a hurry. The person in, who was there before me, I don't know who it was. It was just the, the, the number that was on, on, on the pump, 10 bucks. You know, Roy, for somebody who looks at the energy prices and says, you know, well, you know, at least I'm getting something back on that, which is the line taken by the Trudeau Liberals, they don't take into account the mag, you know, the the significant impact this is having having in terms of a weaker Canadian dollar, which adds twenty cents to a liter uh, to the cost of diesel and gasoline. They don't look at the overall impact that the truck that transports those goods to the grocery store. I know you had the very esteemed uh, Sylvain Charlevoix professor, food professor on earlier, and my good friend Eric Cam, uh, who both spoken very, you know, very forcefully to the fact that things aren't as good in this country as we think. The reality is that if you were to take away these policies, which have no other outcome other than to raise the price and to cripple the ability for the middle class to make ends meet, uh, you know, you would find that uh, things could actually turn around a little bit. And, and tomorrow, pressure off. Tomorrow we start. Tomorrow, Dan, we start the program with Professor Professor, with Premier Scott Moe, whose government on the first of January said to the federal government, "We're not collecting the carbon tax for you any longer on heating fuels on on, so the Saskatchewan residents." Don't have to pay the carbon tax because we're not collecting it. We're, you know, we do what you want. I mean, there's potential fines and prison at the end of that legislation, right? Look, I was the point man for consumer affairs to the Liberal Party in opposition from 06 to 11. Uh, this would never have flown under our group. You know that. We've, you've spoken to me. I know that. I've known you for a long time. And I think you'll find that after the call of 2025 or 2024, the Liberal Party and others will start to realize that all of these things you want to do have to be done in lockstep with the ability for Canadians to prosper. If you destroy that, forget your your career in politics. You're actually doing something that is, you know, at tantamount to playing with the future of a of once great nation. And uh, no one has the right to do that. And no one should have the right to do that. At the end of the day, this whole exercise, the activists need to leave, all 10 or 12% of them, and they need to give back to the people who are struggling, truly struggling to make ends meet. We can achieve all the wonderful things in the world. We are one of the cleanest nations when it comes to a barrel of oil that we produce or the amount of emissions that we produce. And I'm not talking CO2. CO2, we can have an argument about, uh, it's, it, they call it a pollutant. It's not. But I'll leave that to the scientists, the real scientists, not the full ones that are paid by the federal government to trot out nonsense. If we look at what Canada's record has been in terms of environmental stewardship, it is second to none in the world. And I know that because I sat in the Environmental Committee as a, as a member of Parliament. I know the work that we've accomplished. But you don't do these things in violation of and in deference to uh, the ability for people to make ends meet. You do that, you're shown the door. And the sooner the better. 6.8 million Canadians live in food insecurity, including 1.8 million children Increasing prices, increasing taxes contribute to that 
reality. Food banks cannot keep up. People are living in their cars. It's a big picture. I'm taking a small part of the big picture. But without that smaller part of the big picture, you don't have a picture. That smaller part, in my view, is becoming larger and larger because as people become less confident, the, the situation just exacerbates and becomes more of a depressing issue. People who are depressed or people who are not feeling confident or people who are worried are not going to be at their maximum. It's Look, we, we could do this all day long. Give me in 30 seconds, Mr. McTagg, what has to happen from your perspective in 2024. Net zero would have to go. It, it needs, it's a policy that has no purpose. It's an invention and a creation of those who have much and are willing to share with others. I believe 2024, you're going to see energy prices rise. I think geopolitical issues are going to finally wake up markets in the way they have not. Okay. I also believe that Canada may see a new government at the end of the day. Okay. Uh, I, I don't believe this will happen. I've known Laurie Goldstein for 30 plus years. We've aired many programs together. He's been on my program many times. And there were times when I was under attack by some groups. And Laurie generously came to my defense. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of things here with Laurie. Number one, we'll talk about the um, situation, the intimidation of, or the planned intimidation of Jewish residents in Toronto, including arson. It's happening elsewhere in Canada. So I want to talk to Laurie about that. But I also want to talk to Laurie about Justin Trudeau's challenged free Christmas New Year vacation in Jamaica, occupying a $9,300 nightly rental residence owned by a friend of the Trudeau family. Here we go again. Just want to play you this. Mary Dawson, the former ethics commissioner for Parliament, I talked to her about Trudeau's Bahamas visit, where he was convicted of ethics violations under the Conflict of Interest Act. Here's what Mary Dawson said. Section 11 is the most uh, commonly requested information about. It's the, the gift uh, provision. And uh, effectively, he uh, received, uh, in, 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 the judgment, in my judgment at the time, a gift from um, somebody, a gift of a holiday on a private island. So there's Mary Dawson. Here's Laurie Goldstein, the editor emeritus of the Toronto Sun. Laurie, uh, Dan Albus, member of parliament, tweeted this. How can one be con- – the PMO said that, uh, that Trudeau had consulted with the ethics commissioner. Albus wrote, how can one be consulting with the ethics commissioner while at the same time publicly claiming to be paying their own way, which would have negated the need to consult with the commissioner? This makes no sense. What do you make of this whole story? Um, well, well, to me, it's, it's just rinse and repeat for Trudeau, right? I mean – I mean, he went to the same place last year. Um, the more, as you noted, with Dawson's uh, ruling on him years ago, it, very similar circumstances. He goes off to an island owned by the um, Aga Khan, and um, uh, then he says, "Well, it's exempted under the Act because he's my friend." And then Mary Dawson says, uh, "No, <laughs> the Aga Khan was a friend with your dad, not with you." And then um, Trudeau says, well, I accept responsibility for having violated the Conflict of Interest Act, but I disagree with Mary Dawson that he isn't my friend. Well, that was the basis of her finding, because there's an exemption in the um, Conflict of Interest Act for gifts from friends. Now, what I don't understand is um, why is it why is it okay 
that a person who doesn't know Trudeau gives him an expensive gift, but it is okay if a friend gives him an expensive gift. I mean, to me, the whole basis for the concern about this stuff is with regard to cronyism. And, and so to me, the solution here is, look, if, the, if he can go anywhere he wants, and he can accept any gifts from anybody he wants, if that's what he wants to do. But we should know about it as a matter of course. You don't have to do it before he goes. I get that there's, um, you know, I get that there's security concerns and all that. But once a year, I'd like somebody, either the ethics commissioner or the auditor general or, or the parliamentary budget officer, to lay out specifically, okay, where did he go this year on vacation? Who paid for it? And the reason for that is that that, to me, eliminates the concern about a potential conflict of interest. I don't care if a friend of Justin Trudeau gives him a $10,000 a night villa. What I want to know is, does that friend do any, any business with the federal government? And could Justin Trudeau be influenced because of his friendship and the generosity of his friend? Because other, otherwise, we have this, this happens all the time. The PMO keeps, makes it a big secret, which they shouldn't do. Then they get their facts wrong. I, I mean, the, they, they told whoever was doing the initial media inquiry, they told them that um, uh, Trudeau was, was paying the, the cost. Now, it doesn't mean all the cost, but you know, he's paying the commercial rate for flying and all that kind of stuff. And then, well, no, then it becomes it was a gift from a friend. Now, the Conflict of Interest Act says that you can receive gifts from friends, right? I think that thing ought to be, uh, you know, one of two ways. Either it's all out there, we know at the end of the year in an official report, or as Mary Dawson recommended, we remove this exemption for friends. Because, as Mary Dawson said in her judgment, it's very difficult to determine under the Conflict of Interest Act what a friend is. Um, you know, she said that, uh, though he said... Sorry, Trudeau said about the Aga Khan thing when he, when he went off to the Caribbean, he's my friend. Mary Dawson interviewed him, reviewed the facts, and said, no, actually the Aga Khan was a friend with your dad. Uh, your relationship with the Aga Khan, other than sporadic um, uh, encounters as you would have child of two friends, doesn't start till you become liberal leader. Um, and so, you know, and the other thing, too, is this, this standard thing that they consulted the ethics commissioner. The ethics commissioner is not God. Um, the ethics commissioner is not your conscience or your judgment. Like, like, don't keep running to us and saying this uh, overseer of an act where the maximum fine is five hundred dollars, right? Five hundred dollars, yeah, 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 yeah. and that's not even for things like this. That's for you. You do your paperwork. To, you know, um, the conflict of interest act, which, in fairness to this government, it wasn't passed by this government. It was passed by the Harper government. It's not a very good piece of legislation, which is natural when, when politicians are passing what they determine is a conflict of interest. And, and so to me, to me, the only way to deal with this, because yes, the prime minister and his family are entitled to a, a vacation, and I really don't care whether they vacation in Canada or, or somewhere else, is, is there a conflict of interest in how that um, a vacation was funded? Um, that's the deal to me. If this family wants to give him $10,000 a night things and they don't do any business with the federal government, knock your socks off. You know, I really don't care. But, but we don't know that. We never know until 
after the fact, and it's because of media probing, not because it's part of the of standard operating procedure, where he went, uh, who he, you know, who funded it, who paid for it, and what was the relationship between whoever funded it and him. And, and that's what's causing this thing to happen over and over again. So I have a, a red flag here as well, because Mr. Trudeau selected Commissioner von Finkenstein himself. He was a personal selection of the prime minister to be the ethics commissioner. He's interim yeah. right now, but he could become the ethics commissioner for the next seven years. And it's supposed to be that the opposition parties have a role in selecting the ethics commission. It's not just the prime minister saying, I want this person. He did it with Mario Dion, the previous ethics commissioner. Yeah, you know, and I mean, to me, to me, Dawson and Dion were both good. But, but I agree with you. It should be the same status as the auditor general or the parliamentary budget officer, who report to parliament, which means they report to us through our elected representatives, not reporting to the prime minister. Laurie, if somebody offers you a hell of a job, and it could be seven years, I'm not saying this is the case with Mr. von Finkenstein, I'm just saying generically, somebody would offer you a tremendous job, and it offers pays a lot of money for seven years, you're going to feel some sort of loyalty to the person who's offered you and created that job opportunity for you. It's, it's shady. It's not appropriate. Lori, threats, criminal acts, calls for, let's call it what it is, the extermination of Canada's Jewish population taking place in the open. Your response, the Jewish population's response, and what about the government's response, various levels of government in this country? Well, uh, to me, there, there are two separate issues here. One is Canada's opinion on the war in Gaza that was set off by Hamas's terrorist attack. And the role Canada plays as a member of the UN in, in calling for ceasefires and all those kind of things. I have no problem with most of the political pronouncements on that. that that's, you know, that's a geopolitical issue. Um, anyone who knows that part of the world knows it's complicated. Um, you know, uh, Canada calling for a ceasefire without condemning Hamas. I wasn't a a fan of that, but a fan of that, but you know it is what it is. But the, the, the other, more, far more relevant issue is the explosion of Jew hatred in Canada, in the, and frankly, globally, um, around around the world. And you know we see it, we see it here, we see it in Europe. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we have. And the reason it's hate-filled is that blaming Jews in Canada for the actions of the Israeli government, that's true hatred. That's anti-Semitism. The equivalent of it would be blaming Arabs and Palestinians and Muslims in Canada for the terrorism of Hamas or Hezbollah or ISIS. And it has to be absolutely, unequivocally, constantly condemned. And on that score, from both the federal, provincial, and municipal governments, you know, I and I think a lot of Jewish Canadians have been rather shocked by the lack of unequivocal, unequivocal, you can't do that in Canada. You can't fire bullets at Jewish schools. You can't firebomb synagogues. You can't torch and vandalize bookstores. You can't go into a Jewish community um, where your whole purpose is to target and threaten them. And I would have thought, based on the Prime Minister's comments 
about the uh, the truck convoy, the freedom convoy. Um, you know, at that, like in the things he said at that time, and there were, of course, disagreements about whether he, you know, did he handle that properly. But if we think a domestic threat is is that devastating, is can be that eroding to the body politic, then it has to be done here. Because if it isn't done, no bully, no criminal, no anti-Semite is going to be stopped by motherhood expressions of anti-Semitism is horrible and Islamophobia are horrible. Of course, they're horrible. In terms of Islamophobia, we have that horrible thing. Well, it's not horrible now, but, but it's the sentencing of this, you know, white supremacist in London, Ontario, who drove a pickup truck into a, fa- a Muslim family out for an evening walk in the summer. And then he tells the police he did it because he wanted to encourage other young men to do the same thing. Like, okay, how hard is it to unequivocally condemn that, right? And how hard is it to say, whatever your views of what's going on in Israel, right, in this country, we do not, we do not um, uh, engage in criminal activity against groups of people whose only sin is that they're their particular religion or their skin color or anything like that. We've certainly done it. We've, we've certainly done it on the past for other groups. Um, uh, so I, I think with a lot of members of the, and look, I want to be clear here. There are, there's been enormous support from non-Jewish Canadians, ordinary people to the Jewish community. And that has been the great comfort of living in Canada. I've seen it in emails. I've seen it in emails from listeners across the country. You want to make the point. Yeah. Yep, no, um, that, thank God, you know, thank God that in Canada, the vast majority of people, wherever they come from, know what's right and know what's right. But, Laurie, we have to ask ourselves, why is there not the political response, the leadership response, that is absolutely required? Give me 30 seconds on that, please. It's votes. It's votes. I mean... You know, they're trying to play both ends against the middle. There's like, what, 395, 350,000 Jews in the country and about triple that um, uh, Muslims. It's ridiculous because the vast majority of Muslims don't agree with what's happening. Um, you know, listen to Iranian Canadian uh, Muslims. They've been at the forefront of denouncing anti-Semitism and all this. So it's this weird thing that these politicians have in their head that, A, all Jews support what, what's going on in Israel. That's not true. And that all Muslims support, uh, you know, terrorism. That's not true. Most people reasonably, I think, would expect their prime minister to go, if any minority is being attacked, it's wrong, and we're going to do something about it right. at every level. And that hasn't happened. It seems to be happening now. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.